Is it truly good to be the king? Or would you rather be second place, which essentially means you're the first loser? Well, if you want the answers to those questions, you're going to have to continue listening to this download, okay? As you've just hit that download button, all right? Don't go anywhere. Don't turn it off. And join us for a King of the Ring Trading Places Series edition of Kicking Out of Two. I'm your host, Dave Rosenbluth. Thank you all so very much for joining me. Uh, full disclosure this week, schedule's been a little hectic in my personal life, um, which can be a good thing. Um, it's not always bad, but, um, you know, I couldn't couldn't get a, a co-host to, uh, you know, sit down and kind of bounce back and forth when it came to this, uh, th this subject matter, so I had to squeeze this one in and do it on my own based on my schedule. So uh, if any of you guys have any issues with me flying solo, by all means, I can take constructive criticism. Tell me what's working, what's not working, and hit me up on social media, facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two, as well as our Twitter handle at kicking out two, K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T and the number two. I'm pretty sure you've all hit that like button and joined us over on Facebook, but if you haven't, hit the like button, then tell as many friends as you can to hit that like button. And I'm pretty sure that some of you that have Twitter, you're giving us a follow. But if you haven't, hit the follow button and tell others to hit that follow button and join us. We have all kinds of fun over there. Try to keep the uh, the, the atmosphere pretty positive when it comes to debating about pro wrestling. We got you know the links to our archive shows up on you know our social media pages, pictures, articles. Just trying to create you know dialogue with with the with the listeners and the audience and the rest of the kicking out at two crew i don't want it to be negative like most you know these dirt sheets and these uh different pages on social media that are dedicated to pro wrestling where people just want to cut each other's throat because one person has a different opinion than the other it's not what i do um i try to reminisce on this the the stuff that made me a fan you know growing up watching this stuff and that's why i do this because I'm a fan, and some people need to stay in their lane and know that they're fans. So, uh, you know, for those of you listening out there that think you know better, you don't, okay? And neither do I. So sit down, shut up, continue listening to this podcast because you're a fan just like I am, and everything will be fine. Everything will be copacetic. So, uh, yeah, that's what I have to say when it comes to um, wrestling fans and negative wrestling fans, I should say. We keep a positive atmosphere on kicking out at two and on our social media. So join that fun over there, Facebook and our Twitter. Um, before we get into the subject matter, um, allow me to uh, remind you all that um, you know we are a part of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network over on Podbean. You can find back uh, backlog archive shows of kicking out at two, as well as uh, marking out the days, weekend warriors. Uh, Hulkamania is Dead, Gaijin Wrestling Radio, Cool Down with AC, and so many more shows over on Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network on Podbean. You can find those shows as well as Kicking Out at Two on Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, and all other podcast platforms available. Um, and, you know, I mentioned marking out the days earlier. Don't forget to check out our sister show. Marking out the day's weekend warriors that drops each and every Saturday. Um, this week we cover WCW Saturday Night and WWF Superstars from June the sixth, nineteen ninety two. We cover um, the the you know the the entire shows and we compare them and we we determine which show. Which company had the better show on that particular day? Um, 1992 is an interesting year in wrestling. A lot of people consider it to be the beginning of a downturn. Um, I feel like it was the last real good year of the golden age of pro wrestling. 
Um, but we saw some good changes and we saw some building blocks to the future on both shows with both companies. And we're really starting to see, um, you know, who's going to emerge from the pack as a future star and who wasn't going to make the cut. And uh, yeah, so, you know, we, we, we basically re, we relive our childhood from Saturday morning wrestling and Saturday evening wrestling because, like they say, Saturdays are for wrestling. They're not for the boys. They're for wrestling. So check out Marking Out the Day's Weekend Warriors each and every week over at the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. And uh, before we get into our our subject matter, King of the Ring Trading Places, which, by the way, not to confuse some of you, um, because there's been different incarnations of the King of the Ring, we're only going to cover the Trading Places scenarios and all the what-ifs when it comes to the pay-per-view event and the finals of those King of the Ring tournaments from 1993, excuse me, to 2002. So there's been King of the Ring tournaments and King of the Ring winners crowned before they started it as a pay-per-view and long after they stopped running King of the Ring as a regular pay-per-view um, at the end of uh, 2002. So we're just going to cover the, the the winners and the runners-up and and play a little role reversal, a little switcheroo, and figure out those trajectories. You know, Razor Ramon, could he have beaten Owen Hart in 1994 and become King of the Ring? And what? how far would he have gotten? What would he have done as the King of the Ring? Well, we're going to discuss that. What about if... Uh, you know, if, if, if Kurt Angle didn't defeat Rikishi to become the King of the Ring in 2000, what would they have done with Rikishi as King of the Ring? Well, realistically, we're going to map out his trajectory and all the other runners-up and those King of the Ring award winners coming up shortly. Um, like I said, before we get into that and before we get into our subject this week, uh, let, let's do a little roll call and give you guys a little preview as to what's to come on Kicking Out at 2 in the next few weeks. Um you know, it's a big it's a, it's a big time in our family is in the Rosenbluth says my brother Justin, who's a big part of this show, is gonna be getting married shortly on July the third. And uh, we got a loaded uh, schedule for you guys as uh, next week, June the twelfth, we're gonna be doing a watch party of ECW one night stand two thousand and five. It was the night that uh, WWE brought back the ECW brand and brought all the top names from the original ECW to partake in this special reunion show from the Hammerstein Ballroom in New York City. Uh, we'll be watching that event on the 14-year anniversary of that event. Uh, so that's going to be a lot of fun. Have your WWE Network ready and ready to go as you can watch that show with us. Turn the TV on mute, listen to us, and enjoy our alternate commentary, a pro wrestling fan's perspective of that event as you're watching it on WWE Network. And the following week, June 19th, we're going to be discussing the greatest wedding crashers in professional wrestling history. Who loves a good wrestling wedding? I think we all do. But all wrestling weddings, they don't end well. And there's some form of wedding crashing that takes place um, at these particular weddings. So we're going to discuss those um, on June the 19th with uh, Justin as we get... Um, we get set for his, uh, you know, his big day. Is uh, he, he's getting set to marry uh, in a few weeks. The following week, June the twenty sixth, we're gonna bring back the my favorite series, and Justin's gonna sit down and he's gonna discuss his favorite wrestler of all time, Brett the Hitman Hart. We kind of brought up some of Brett's big memories in our Owen Hart tribute show recently, but um, decided that uh, you know, because it's close to his big day. And, you know, Brett was a big part of him growing up as a wrestling fan that, you know, we 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 uh, we bring the My Favorite series to him. And uh, he, he tells us why Brett the Hitman Hart in his mind is the best there is, the best there was and the best there ever will be. Um, the following week, 
which will be on his actual wedding day, July the 3rd, before he walks that aisle and says, I do, um, we're going to sit down and we're going to watch the In Your House Canadian Stampede pay-per-view event from 1995. Special uh, special wedding day watch party, if you will. Um, that's That, that pay-per-view is infamous for the... The one probably one of the best ten man tags in all of wrestling history as um, Stone Cold Steve Austin, Legion of Doom, Ken Shamrock, and Goldust faced the hometown kids in Calgary, Brett the Hitman Hart and the Hart Foundation, Owen Hart, British Bulldog, Jim Neidhart, and Brian Pillman in uh, one of the wildest ten man tag matches I've ever seen. And then uh, following that on July the tenth, we're gonna we're gonna celebrate our one year anniversary because it was on July the tenth last year that the pilot episode of kicking out at two took place we did a special wcw bash at the beach 1996 watch along well on july the 10th 2019 here we're gonna do wcw bash at the beach 1994 trading places we're gonna cover all the what if scenarios when it came to that event what if rick flair became victorious and defeated hulk hogan in his debut match in wcw what if what if stunning Steve Austin and Ricky Steamboat didn't have the classic that they did? And what if stunning Steve Austin didn't leave with his championship and it was Steamboat instead? What if Vader lost to the Guardian Angel? We're going to discuss all that and then some on our special one-year anniversary episode, WCW Bash at the Beach 1994 from our Trading Places series. And then following that, we're going to continue the one-year anniversary celebration the following week, July the 17th, WCW Bash at the Beach 1995 Watch Party. We're going to continue the Bash at the Beach love because it's the summertime and the, and, and the living is certainly not easy. Um, we're going to cover Bash at the Beach 1995, July 17th, which will be the one-year anniversary of our debut episode. Now, like I said to you just a moment ago, the 96 Bash at the Beach was the pilot episode. I was just kind of testing things out, seeing where the listeners you know, we're going to fall in the kicking out at two crew. And then I made my triumphant debut in the podcasting world on my own with the SummerSlam 1997 watch along with my brother, Justin. But this time around, we're going to celebrate Bash at the Beach 1995 um, on the one year anniversary of our debut episode. And then continuing that one year anniversary celebration later that week, we're going to have a bonus show for you guys as we're going to be covering outdoor stadium shows. That's right. I'm a big mark for outdoor stadium shows uh, in the history of pro wrestling. And you know, I wanted to cover you know some of the more memorable shows. You know, WrestleManias have been held in big stadiums, um, outdoors. I've been to a few of them myself. Uh, WCW used to hold a lot of outdoor events between the Nitros at Spring Break, the Hog Wild, the, the, the motorcycle rallies. Um, we're going to cover all the most memorable stadiums outdoor stadium shows and what makes them such a um what 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 makes me a big mark for them pretty much so we're going to cover that on our one year anniversary episode and that yeah that that, that really about does it well when it comes to the roll call and what we got planned for you um for the the as we continue on this this journey as i'd like to call it here on kicking out it too all right here we are king of the ring trading places like i said at the top of the pod Normally, the month of June in wrestling history was always reserved for the King of the Ring tournament, the King of the Ring pay-per-views from 1993 to 2002, and I'm going to cover the finals of those tournaments from 93 to 2002. 
um, and trade places with those scenarios and see where the runners-up would have fared had they won the King of the Ring. But before we do that, um, I might as you know, as a wrestling historian, a wrestling buff, I'm very detail-oriented. I'm sure some of you that listen to are very detail-oriented as well. I'm going to cover... I'm, I'm going to bookend 93 and 2002 with the front end and back end King of the Ring winners because this was a concept that was tested out in the 80s uh, before it became a regular traditional pay-per-view in 1993. And this was also a concept that they had tested out and continued following 2002 when they dropped the traditional King of the Ring pay-per-view. So um, I... I at least want to address that and kind of give you my thoughts and my take on that before we get into 93 to 2002. So why don't we start in the back end here. Um, Following 2002, WWE would not continue with the King of the Ring pay-per-view as an annual June event. And so they they kind of sprinkled the concept around in different areas um, when it was necessary. And in 2006, it came back um, with a lot of fanfare as the finals of the tournament saw Booker T defeat Bobby Lashley at the Judgment Day pay-per-view. And to me, in my opinion, this was probably the best King of the Ring award winner coming after after 2002. Um, Booker T really ran with it, made it its own, um, and it was one of the more memorable characters and memorable... uh, things that he did in wrestling um you know he's he's known for his great stuff in harlem heat with stevie ray and wcw he's known for a great singles run in wwe and all the things he did but this here king booker i think is kind of what defines his wwe run um because i wouldn't say he was floundering but he was a known brand of wcw and you know how vince mcmahon likes to do it he takes a guy from another organization and puts his own spin on him and it took a few years but they finally got something that worked for all parties involved and like i said he ran with it man queen charmel the the rivalries he had with batista defeating Rey mysterio for the world championship at the great american bash later that year in 2006 i mean it was it was some fun stuff to see all hell king booker um with the pinky in the in the air and it it was just it was it was a lot of fun and i didn't think i'd like it at first because i was a big booker t fan from his time in wcw but it really grew on me and and it was in some ways it was very similar to when um they they brought the jbl character to life in 2004 just a few years prior i i didn't really like it at all and um that grew on me as well and i ended up liking it so much that you know when he retired I was kind of disappointed because I really thought that the JBL character had some legs. But unfortunately, injuries put him on the shelf, and that was the end of that. But, um, yeah, Booker T, man, probably the best king of the ring post-2002. As we move on, uh, 2008, William Regal would defeat CM Punk on an episode of Monday Night Raw in the spring of 2008. And didn't really do it for me. Uh, With him as king, I was hopeful, and it it sounded promising, but I didn't really... uh, I didn't really see um, see it going anywhere, and and it didn't. It, it really didn't. Um, you know, he had a lot of potential, and I mean, he's most remembered for kissing Vince McMahon's ass on on live TV. So I can't really uh, I can't really picture him as King of the Ring. I've almost forgotten. Just like another individual who I almost forgot was the King of the Ring was Sheamus, who defeated John Morrison in November of 2010 on an episode of Monday Night Raw. 
Um, they tried to add a more Irish Celtic approach to his King of the Ring attire post his victory, and he looked like a Harry Potter reject. And that's no disrespect to those that watch Harry Potter, that follow Harry Potter. Harry Potter is a big popular brand for um, you know books and, and, and movies, and it, I just... It didn't resonate with me, and I thought it was stupid, and it wasn't really memorable at all. Like I said, almost forgot about it. Um, one individual who I thought had a chance to really um, run with the King of the Ring title, and I think it was a little, you know, a little too late, was Wade Barrett in 2015. He defeated Neville, who is now known as Pac in All Elite Wrestling. Um, I mean, Barrett had had these stop and start pushes with the company. Uh, from his time in Nexus, uh, the Bad News Barrett character was really getting over. They cut his legs out from under him with that. He got hurt, and then they brought him back, and he was King Barrett and winning this tournament. And I just, I I wanted to see it work, but I saw the writing on the wall, unfortunately, as a fan. And they, they tried. He tried. It just didn't resonate. And, you know, that was the last time that WWE would um, w- would introduce the King of the Ring tournament. Um, there's been talk of them bringing it back maybe for WWE Network specials, but, you know, that remains to be seen. Um, so that's the post-2002 era of King of the Ring. But before we get into our trading places from 93 to 2002, this concept was tested out on the live event circuit in the 80s and early 90s, um, before 93. Uh, we can go back to July the 8th. 1985, and we would see Don Morocco defeat the Iron Sheik to become the King of the Ring. Now, I don't believe there was any kind of, you know, award for the winner, no title shot. I don't believe there was a crown and a cape. This was just something that was done as like a special attraction at a live event, and probably something they were just testing out to see if it could, you know, work on a bigger stage like TV and pay-per-view. Um, speaking of that, um, they, they, they ran with it quickly enough in November of that year at the very first traditional pay-per-view known as the Wrestling Classic as the Junkyard Dog would defeat the Macho Man Randy Savage um, from the Rosemont Horizon in Chicago, Illinois to become King of the Ring. And that's a, that's a title that JYD kind of ran with a little bit in his rivalry with Harley Race, who would end up winning the King of the Ring tournament at a live event the following year in July 14th, 1986, defeating Pedro Morales. And he would really run with that King of the Ring title. And I, and him and Junkyard Dog had a rivalry heading into WrestleMania 3. Who was the real king? Was JYD going to bow down to the king known as Harley Race? And that was the big setup heading into WrestleMania 3 that year. Um, the following year, 1987... Macho Man Randy Savage would win the King of the Ring tournament, defeating King Kong Bundy on September the 4th. Um, The following year, at a a live event in October, on the 16th in 1988, he would lose to the million-dollar man Ted DiBiase, which I found to be very interesting. And still, this was stuff that wasn't acknowledged on television. Um, This was just stuff that was done at live events as special attractions to sell tickets. Like I said, no crown, no scepter. The only time they really did that was when Harley Race embraced the King gimmick. Um, The following year, 1989, uh, the Battle of the Former Strike Force Partners. October the 14th, Tito Santana defeated 
the model Rick Martel to become the king of the ring. And then two years later in 1991, in September of 1991, fresh off of his Intercontinental Championship victory over Mr. Perfect at SummerSlam, Bret the Hitman Hart became king of the ring to defeat defeating Erwin R. Scheister at a live event. Um, and then we get to the traditional pay-per-view format, 1993 to 2002, which I'm going to start covering right now. Um, but like I said, I wanted to address those two elephants in the room, so to speak, because I know there's pe- people that are big wrestling buffs and historians and you're de- detail-oriented like myself, and you know, I just needed to address that before you guys call me out because I hate when people call me out because then i got to call people out back, and then it just gets ugly and stupid, and it gets real messy, and I, I don't like doing that. So um, this is a fun podcast, like I've always said from the very beginning. Um, yeah, the... 1993 to 2002, traditional King of the Ring pay-per-views. Some of those pay-per-views were, you know, full eight-man single elimination tournaments. Some of those pay-per-views highlighted um, the final four and then the finals of the tournament. You had other undercard matches, championship matches, grudge matches, etc., etc. But 1993, as far as I knew at that time, at 10 years old, that was the very first King of the Ring pay-per-view and the very first King of the Ring tournament I was aware of. Um, even with the Wrestling Classic. I didn't even know there was the Wrestling Classic at that time. Um, so, go figure. Um, anyhow, uh, we would see the finals lead up to uh, Bret the Hitman Hart and Bam Bam Bigelow. Now, Bret Hart was coming off of um, his first screw job. <laughs> Okay, um, to be fair to the hitman, his first screw job uh, from WrestleMania 9 when he lost the title in controversial fashion to Yokozuna when he had Yokozuna in the sharpshooter and Mr. Fuji threw the salt in the eyes while the referee was distracted. Yokozuna defeating Brett, becoming the champion. And then as things got worse, some more salt in the wound. Hulk Hogan came out to defend the honor of Bret Hart only for Mr. Fuji to challenge Hulk Hogan and Hogan to defeat Yokozuna in a matter of seconds to become the World Wrestling Federation champion in an impromptu match. Uh, So this King of the Ring was all about redemption for Bret Hart and his character, and he would would face uh, a few obstacles along the way in the form of uh, Razor Ramon and Mr. Perfect and some great... Uh, quarterfinal and semifinal matches. Some say that the matches with uh, Razor and Perfect are probably the, the the best matches on that on that particular card. But I'm not going to get into those here. Um, we're going to talk about the finals. Bret Hart Yokozuna. As we saw, history told us that Bret Hart came out the victor and became the 1993 King of the Ring. Uh, he got some form of redemption and. There was some credibility put back into his character. And the people wanted to see him win because he was unfairly robbed of the WWF Championship at WrestleMania just two months prior. So, um, Brett celebrating. And it means Gene Oakland's interviewing him. And out of nowhere, Jerry the King Lawler, who's somewhat of a fresh face to WWF programming at that time in 1993, um comes out to dispute Brett's uh, victory as king and that Lawler is the real king of the World Wrestling Federation, which then led to Jerry Lawler attacking Brett the Hitman Hart, destroying the crown um, and humiliating him to end the 1993 King of the Ring pay-per-view event. Now, however, what if we didn't get that? What if Bret Hart never won the King of the Ring tournament. What if we trade places and it was Bam Bam Bigelow coming out the victor and becoming King of the Ring for 1993? 
Now, let's just think about this for a minute, okay? The landscape in 93. Um, if Bam Bam Bigelow were to have won, um, would Yokozuna have defeated Hulk Hogan in that same pay-per-view at the King of the Ring? Would we have seen maybe a Hulk Hogan-Bam Bam Bigelow WWF Championship uh, rivalry uh, following King of the Ring? Probably not. Um, they were they were going more youth at the time, and Hogan was on his way out. Yoko would would win the title that night in controversial fashion. However, I could see I could see a short term run with Bigelow as the king, and um, you know, kind of the the same way that Hacksaw Jim Duggan adopted the king moniker. Um, even though Duggan never really won. Uh, a King of the Ring tournament, he would be proclaimed the king um, in 1989 following a series of matches with um, Macho Man or Macho King, Randy Savage. Uh, he would have the crown. Or, or was it Harley Race? Maybe it was Harley Race. Anyhow, um, Duggan would adopt the, the, the King Duggan moniker. And, uh, you know, he, he it was kind of like his title, so to speak, um, his, his intercontinental championship. And I feel like the same could be said for Bam Bam Bigelow in 1993. Maybe we would have seen some television matches and, uh, you know, leading up to um, a match with Bam Bam Bigelow and Yokozuna for the WWF Championship. I mean, Bam Bam Bigelow was a popular character, both as a good guy and a bad guy. Um, He was over. He was a very athletic big man. And he was a fresh face in the WWF at that time. Um, I felt like, and I, I should say, I feel like in hindsight... Um, had Bigelow defeated Brett, maybe we would have seen, um, maybe we would have, you know, still seen Brett in the title picture down the line at SummerSlam, or you know, maybe we would have seen, uh, you know, Bam Bam Bigelow have a short little run against Yokozuna, and and that would be where he would peak. That's his ceiling, um, but he wouldn't make it to a title opportunity at SummerSlam. But you also have to take into account. What they were doing with Lex Luger at the time, 1993, he was, you know, the 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 Hulk Hogan replacement, in my opinion. And so, if they weren't going to go that route, maybe, you know, Brett Yoko at SummerSlam that year would have been the end game. But Bigelow would have kind of had his moment in the sun against Yokozuna, um, in 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 similar fashion to Bigelow's outing against Andre the Giant in the. The closing moments of the main event at Survivor Series in 1987. Uh, Bigelow being a very athletic big man, um, just falling short to Andre. I could kind of see a babyface King Bam Bam Bigelow, uh, you know, brushing up against the mighty Yokozuna on a number of Monday Night Raws and superstars um, leading up to a big match on Raw. But really, that's where about I think he peaks. Um, I can't see him main event in SummerSlam that year against Yokozuna, that's for sure. But I can kind of see him taking that King gimmick and adopting it just a little bit. Not being the traditional royal majesty of professional wrestling like others, like his other predecessors. Um, And kind of making it his own title, so to speak. Maybe even uh, changing the look up of the crown and the robe. Adding some flames to the presentation. Really adopting it as his own um, for that short period of time. But... uh, you know, nothing more than that when it comes to Bam Bam Bigelow. Um, like I said, you have other variables with Lex Luger and his turn to, to, to being the, you know, made in the USA, all-American, white meat babyface. 
Brett's still in the picture as well. So I can't see Bigelow really moving past those two. But I can see him in the mix for a short period of time as like a transition before Yoko really gets to his his main role um, later that summer as the, the heel champion against Luger. Um, maybe Bam Bam Bigelow could be like the uh, the not the foil, but like the catalyst of Yokozuna just being so dominant and just running through guys that it, it results in Luger at the USS Intrepid being the one to you know answer the challenge and slam uh, you know Yokozuna to get that opportunity at the title. Maybe it, it could you know lead to you know people you know becoming more sympathetic to Bam Bam Bigelow as the king after he had, you know, so valiantly fought off the evil foreigner, Yokozuna, for the WWF Championship, but come up short, and Yoko injuring him in the process, leading to Luger making the save, and there you have it, right there, your SummerSlam main event. Um, Would have been a nice little interesting twist, but like I said, that ceiling, I think, really, you know, caps off before SummerSlam of 1993 that year. Uh, let's move on to the following year, 1994, as we saw Owen Hart and Razor Ramon in the finals of the King of the Ring tournament. We would see um, Jim Neidhart's involvement um, throughout the course of that evening as Brett's surprise corner man in the championship match with Diesel, uh, resulting in Anvil costing Brett the victory, but not the championship via a disqualification, which would then result in Anvil costing Razor Ramon the opportunity to become King of the Ring, and therefore Owen Hart claiming the victory and the crown as the King of Hearts, um, heading into you know later on that summer with his uh, his rivalry with his brother Brett for the WWF Championship. Um, that's what history showed us. That's what history told us. And I feel like this this King of the Ring trading places scenario, it's plausible, but I don't think it has many legs. Um, and that's not because of the performer, Razor Ramon, because he's a talented performer, but I think this King of the Ring victory was better suited for Owen Hart than Razor Ramon. But had... History told us a different story. Had we trade places and Razor Ramon picks up the victory. Now, let's say, how does he pick up the victory? Um, maybe, you know, Anvil still, you know, continues the assault on Razor out on the floor. And Brett shows up. And it's like, what are you doing, man? You cost me the match. Now you're going to cost Razor the king of the ring? What's going on? And that leads to some form of a distraction with Owen. Referee getting involved, and maybe that's how Razor picks up the victory um, and becomes the 1994 King of the Ring. Razor's a guy that was so over that you know he was a staple in the Intercontinental title picture. Um, he had a longstanding rivalry with Shawn Michaels and then eventually Diesel that year. And so um, I feel like... I feel like, uh, you know, a King of the Ring victory for Razor would be a nice little feather in his cap. It would. I'm not going to lie there. But um, where would he go from there, realistically, in 1994? Um, I think similar to my my scenario with Bigelow, I think he would adopt the King of the Ring persona into his machismo gimmick. You know, the King of Machismo. The, the 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 crown is oozing machismo, man. That's right. The bad guy, the king, Reza, King Reza Ramon. That's right, chico. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you could sell t-shirts with that, you know. You could even sell, uh, you know, little Razor Ramon crowns, you know, King Razor. Um, I don't think he would be the obnoxious king, but he would have this cool way of kind of, you know, embellishing the fact that he won the King of the Ring. I shouldn't say embellishing, but, you know, bragging that he won the King of the Ring tournament to the other heels and the other bad guys, you know, within the, the landscape of the WWF in 1994. I think it could play an interesting part in the Shawn Michaels-Diesel rivalry that he has. Um, could be one of those situations where, you know, Michaels, you know, Michaels could, you know, tout and brag that, well, you know, Razor, you, you may have defeated Owen Hart, but I wasn't in the King of the Ring tournament, and if, you know, if, if I was in that tournament, you wouldn't have beaten me. And maybe this would have turned, you know, this would have resulted in a scenario where Shawn Michaels um, were to attack Razor Ramon and maybe, like, adopt himself the new king of the ring. Maybe he would steal Razor's crown if Razor was sporting a crown. I feel like he would, inco- I feel like Razor would incorporate the, the, the presentation and the look of the king of the ring award winner as someone... Um, you know, in, in his attire, maybe we'd see like little crowns on his tights or his knee pads instead of the little razors. Um, like I said, maybe he would adopt the, the, he wouldn't adopt the robe necessarily, but maybe like he would, you know, wear the crown in a very like, you know, tongue in cheek kind of manner. Um, I, I know I might be, you know, exaggerating it here a little bit, but I don't feel like we would see Razor Ramon coming out with a royal scepter and a crown and being like, hey, Chico, bow down to me. I'm the king, man, you know? Like, I, I, especially in 1994, as popular as he was, I feel like he would he would certainly be proud of the honor of being the king and trying to represent the World Wrestling Federation in the best way he possibly could as a good guy, even though he is the bad guy, man. But I don't feel like... Um, it would be something where it was like, you know, overly braggadocious of him to wear the crown and the robe. But I could see Shawn Michaels, like I said, maybe attacking Razor, maybe trying to strip him of that identity and claiming to be the real king of the World Wrestling Federation, you know. Um, he he stole, you know, he, he came back with the Imposter Intercontinental Championship in 1994, leading to their classic WrestleMania 10 ladder match at Madison Square Garden earlier that year. So it wouldn't be out of the realm for Michaels to try and steal something else from Razor's identity and maybe claim that he's the real king of the ring because he was never in the tournament. And... I, I'm not saying we would see a sequel to the ladder match between the two, but maybe we would see some kind of blow-off match with Razor and Sean. Excuse me, and Razor claiming to be, you know, defeating Sean and being the rightful king of the ring in 1994. Maybe, you know, getting maybe that's something we would see at SummerSlam instead of the Diesel stuff. Um, but I don't... Do I think it could it, that scenario could lead to what we saw later that year with Sean and Diesel splitting up? It's very possible. It's very possible. It's possible that Sean could, you know, uh, still be jealous of Diesel and, uh, you know, his rise up the ranks. And maybe, you know, maybe at SummerSlam 94, if it was Sean and Razor to determine the real king of the ring, uh, maybe Diesel cost Sean the match by accident. Um, 
And then, you know, Sean kind of returns the favor later on on that, that you know, that, that classic match that they had um, on the action zone with uh, Razor and 1-2-3-Kid. Um, I still think they would they would attain the tag team titles from the Head Shrinkers like they did the night before SummerSlam 94. But um, it's, a, it's a cool little interesting scenario and twist that I think could could realistically be be uh, you know plausible in 1994 for Razor Ramon. Do I would I see Razor Ramon moving up the ranks and maybe turning into a bad guy again and being a heel in 1994 and challenging for the title? No, I don't see that at all. Um, as great as his matches would be with Bret Hart, um, he was too popular to 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 turn him into a good guy or turn him into a bad guy again at that time. And he was really holding down the Intercontinental Championship scene and the mid-card because he was so popular. But just imagine, you know, the king of machismo, Reza Ramon, the bad guy, the king, man. Yeah, I just just picture that. I think it's very plausible in 1994, but that's where Razor goes, in my opinion, as far as you know his ceiling as King of the Ring. It's not going to catapult him to the main event because he's already popular as it is, and he's he's credible enough to be in the main event. But he was his role was needed in the Intercontinental Championship picture and doing something with Sean, proclaiming to be who's the real king kind of thing. I could see that. You know, or even Diesel too. You know, let's say for instance, Razor were to win the King of the Ring, and Diesel were to claim that he's the rightful number one contender because even though he didn't win the title, he still claims a victory over Brett at that King of the Ring pay per view. Maybe that's what leads to the 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 Razor Diesel match at SummerSlam later that year. Both guys claiming to be the rightful number one contender. Diesel could still be Intercontinental Champion in that scenario too. Defeating Razor as well. Just kind of having a leg up on him. And it's really all about Razor proving himself. as Not only is he the king of the ring. But now he's got to fight to get his Intercontinental title back. And prove that he may be eligible for a WWF title shot later on down the line. That's plausible as well. So... There's a few different interesting scenarios I think we could have seen Razor Ramon um, with King with the King of the Ring title attached to him in 1994. Um, let's move on to 1995 because uh, 1995 was not very kind to the King of the Ring concept. We had King Mabel defeat Savio Vega um, in the finals of the King of the Ring tournament. And uh, I feel like... And I don't know the reasons behind this. I've tried doing some research, and uh, I, I I honestly don't uh, know the reasons behind this. I believe Scott Hall, Razor Ramon was injured, and he was slated to be a part of that King of the Ring tournament. Um, I believe in storyline, Savio replaced him, if I'm not mistaken. And Razor was going to go to the finals. It felt like that they were going to kind of run with another Razor Ramon, um, you know, King of the Ring final match but this time against Mabel um, and Razor would have been a good guy to help get Mabel over more uh, Mabel had uh, just turned you know men on a mission had just turned heel uh, a few months prior uh, right before Wrestlemania I believe in 1995 and Mabel was becoming a force in the singles division and I, I believe he had a, a little bit of a run with Undertaker. It was kind of like a preview of what we would see later in the year. But, you know, he would mow through opponents in the King of the Ring tournament. And um, it would get us to, uh, you know, him and Savio in the finals, which was a match that was really nothing to write home about. Um, this is another situation where, um, realistically, Mabel was the right choice to be the King of the Ring. However, 
if we trade places and we put Savio in that role, I feel like Savio's role as King of the Ring in 1995 would be portrayed as a fluke victory. Um, and he would have to... It, I, I could see something where on commentary Lawler and uh, I believe Doc Hendricks had just... you know Michael Hayes, who portrayed the Doc Hendricks character, had just uh, made his debut in the WWF as a heel commentator on Superstars. Um, I could see those guys kind of downplaying Savio's victory, that it was a fluke, that, you know, uh, the, 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 the top rope snapped and Mabel lost his footing on the second rope and, you know, Savio managed to pick up the victory, but it was a fluke and it wouldn't have happened. Some, something to that effect. I could see something like that taking place. In uh, 1995, they were throwing all kinds of mud at the wall and seeing what was going to stick when it comes to, you know, creative aspects of their programming. They really were. So I don't feel like this is something that's out of the norm. Um, but re- like I said, Mabel, realistically, the better choice. However, uh, you know, so let's say Savio does get that victory. I could see like him being portrayed as like a fluke King of the Ring winner. Um, he was loosely associated with Razor Ramon and the One Two Three Kid. Um, they were kind of like a, a trio of friends that would you know have each other's back on television from time to time and team up. But uh, you know, I don't see. I don't see Savio Vega setting the world on fire as the 1995 King of the Ring um, later that year or maybe even getting into the main event of uh, a WrestleMania or a big-time pay-per-view. If anything, I could see a few different scenarios for Savio Vega in the role of the 1995 King of the Ring. Um, like I said, you know the, the announcers kind of portraying him as a, as a, uh, a lucky winner. You know, with the fluke victory, but I could also see it leading to um, a, a, an opportunity to be a, a staple in the mid card in the Intercontinental Championship picture. Um, he's a he's the kind of performer that really delivered um, in the ring. He was a good in ring performer, and you know, putting him up against someone like a cocky heel Jeff Jarrett as the Intercontinental Champion, I think we could see um, them produce some really good matches in 1995. Um, I know that you know the, the the talent pool was very thin back then in 1995, and that's one of the main reasons why they turned Shawn Michaels into a good guy and uh, put him in the Intercontinental title picture later that year or the following month against Jarrett. But um, had they not done that with the Savio Vega King of the Ring victory, I feel like we could have seen some really fun stuff between him and um, him and Jeff Jarrett, which then, in my opinion, could lead to, you know, I, I mentioned him earlier, one, two, three kid, loosely associated with Razor Ramon and Savio Vega at this time on television. What if the one, two, three kid were to expedite his heel turn a little bit earlier and become jealous of Savio and Razor's, you know, newfound friendship, Savio's King of the Ring victory, maybe even Savio's Intercontinental title victory. And the one, two, three kids got the million dollar man or somebody in his ear kind of poking and prodding at him. And stirring things up between himself and Savio and Razor. And this is how we see the friendship between the kid and and Razor dissolve. Uh, Maybe the 1-2-3 kid uh, attacking Savio Vega. Taking him out. Or, um, you know, the million dollar man paying off the 1-2-3 kid to 
bring the Intercontinental Championship to the Million Dollar Corporation. As we all know, the Million Dollar Man and the Million Dollar Corporation were a big focal point of storylines in 1995 um, from the beginning of that year with the stuff with Bam Bam Bigelow and Lawrence Taylor at that WrestleMania. The DiBiase had a few guys involved in some a series of matches against Undertaker. Uh, Sid became an acquisition to the corporation, and it was revealed after WrestleMania that DiBiase and Sid were aligned together, and Sid was going to be the one to bring home the WWF Championship. He had a, a, a run against Diesel uh, and a run against uh, you know Shawn Michaels at one point. So um, maybe you know this 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 turn of the one two three kid um, into the Million Dollar Corporation could have, like I said, been expedited a little quicker a few months earlier, and the catalyst could have been the the relationship with Razor and Savio and Savio's success as Razor's protege. Um, that could have been some interesting stuff. Razor, or I'm sorry, Savio and the 123 Kid with DiBiase as you know the manager for the 123 Kid. Imagine a SummerSlam match between the two of them. Uh, not saying it would be for the Intercontinental title, but maybe just a, a grudge match kind of feud between those two. Um, that's something I would get into. That's something that for 1995 I could see. Um, because like I said, they were trying everything. They were trying everything to see what would stick. I mean, they put Lawrence Taylor, NFL linebacker, Hall of Famer, New York Giant great, in the main event of WrestleMania in my hometown of Hartford, fucking Connecticut of all places, against Bam Bam Bigelow. I mean, they were doing anything they can to get attention. So I'm not saying that, you know, Savio and the 123 could be setting the world on fire and we would see them on the front page of USA Today in 1995, but they were doing anything to, to try and get eyeballs on their screen and they were also trying to, you know, build for the future. And those two guys could have been some really good staples in the mid card for their future. Um, in the World Wrestling Federation, so those are the those are the trading places scenarios I could picture realistically for Savio Vega if he were to have won the 1995 King of the Ring tournament over King Mabel. Um, 1996. Let's move on with it. Probably one of the most memorable King of the Ring moments in all of history because of the post match post-match speech, excuse me, of one stone-cold Steve Austin as he defeated Jake the Snake Roberts and the birth of Austin 316 took place in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in June of 1996. Um, yeah, history showed us that, you know, Austin 316 opened up a can of whoop-ass on Jake the Snake Roberts and the birth of probably the one of the biggest stars in all of wrestling was was born right there. Um, some may argue it's Hulk Hogan. Some may argue it's The Rock. Steve Austin certainly in the conversation, not going to lie. Um, and that was the big moment for him. That's what put him on the map. That is what put him on the map was that moment right there when you know Austin three sixteen says I'm you know I'm gonna whoop your ass and he he showed it and it just stuck ever since and the momentum you know would slowly gradually build over time. But um, had now <laughs> this is an interesting one because. That moment right there is regarded as, you know, like I said, the birth of Austin 316. The, the, you know, a star was born, or at least, you know, the makings of a star was born at that time. But imagine had they not gone in that direction. Um, originally, according to the rumor, uh, you know, on the dirt sheets, and, uh, I, well, it's not really rumor, it's, it's almost, you know, pure fact based on, you know, 
my uh, my time listening to something to wrestle with Bruce Pritchard because he's even you know gone on record as saying that that King of the Ring was originally slated to go to Triple H Hunter Hearst Helmsley. They really had big plans for him in '96 in the spring of '96, and he blew that opportunity when he decided to uh, you know uh, participate in that click curtain call in Madison Square Garden a month prior with. You know, Razor Ramon and Diesel and Shawn Michaels um, inside that steel cage following that following that live event um, and breaking kayfabe, ruining the business, as some would say. Um, so his his uh, his push was off the table. You know, Razor and Diesel left for WCW. Shawn was a champ; you couldn't push him, punish him. So someone had to eat the plate of shit that Vince was serving, and it was him. So they they shifted plans and they moved to Austin. Um, and he would win the King of the Ring tournament. Now, imagine if we trade places, if you will, and we see, you know, Austin come up short in his quest to become King of the Ring against the cagey veteran, Jake the Snake Roberts. It was, you know, at the beginning of 1996 that Jake the Snake Roberts had returned to the World Wrestling Federation. He was absent from the business for about three or four years. And... The story on WWF television that was portrayed to us as fans was that Jake the Snake Roberts um, had taken a hiatus from wrestling, and during that time period, he had gone through um, a a long battle with substance abuse, with uh, alcohol and drugs, and abusing um, uh, prescription meds, alcohol, uh, recreational drugs. And they brought that story to light on television in a series of sit-down interviews with Jake, which was really between that and, you know, some of the language on TV at that time and the Gold Dust character. To me, those were like the early signs of like the Attitude Era, um, where they were really going in a different direction. Um, they were flirting with it. Now, I wouldn't say the whole program was edgy. Um, and was filled with, you know, adult-oriented content. But in 1996, they were flirting with it, uh, with certain things. Like I said, gold dust um, and the the exploitation of Jake Roberts' battle with addiction uh, certainly became a, fa- became a, 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 a storyline and a, and a big factor in his character's return on television. So, um Hindsight being 2020, obviously the King of the Ring concept is, is, you know, used to elevate guys and move guys to the next level. However, um, you know, what if Jake the Snake Roberts did come out the victor, okay? Um, 1996 was a year where they were really starting to see what they had in certain guys. And they were still getting pummeled because this was the, the this was before the NWO had even de- uh, had formed over on WCW, um, Hall and Nash were already gone. They were on TV, and this was the you know this was during the Outsider Invasion, and um, so we didn't really know at the time as fans what we were seeing, but what we were seeing was pretty cool. Um, so WWF had to kind of counter that a little bit and use some of their younger guys and their newer talent and build those guys, and that was one of the reasons why they had Austin in that in that role as the winner of the King of the Ring tournament that year. But had they gone in the other direction, 1996, it would kind of look it would in 1996 it would look backwards. But in hindsight, now looking at it in 2019, um, I feel like. There could have been a good story told with Jake Roberts as the King of the Ring. Now let's go back for a minute. 
He returns to the WWF at the Royal Rumble that year. They kind of exploit his uh, his his past dealings with uh, substance abuse uh, in those sit down interviews, and Jake is you know regarded as the grizzled old vet, um, you know looking for one last run, one last you know climb to the mountaintop um, in the WWF, you know wrestling and battling the young stars of the World Wrestling Federation, um, and so. You know, Jake's role behind the scenes, obviously, um, was to help develop some of the younger guys and move them along and, you know, add his name value to the programming because he was still a popular guy. Um, And he had had a break from WWF television for four years and even from the business. So he wasn't um, very active and it was kind of like a refresher for Jake the Snake Roberts, but with a different twist. Uh, This was a more humanized version of Jake the Snake Roberts as they discussed his battles with addiction. So uh, a Jake the Snake Roberts victory with all of that behind him, um, I could I could picture I I could picture you know the the stuff that he did with Jerry Lawler following this King of the Ring where they where they really exposed his his problem with drinking. I could see that still coming into play with him as King of the Ring. you know, I could see, you know, Lawler on commentary, you know, poking fun at Jake, even though he won the King of the Ring, um, talking about how he'll screw up, he'll screw it up, um, the success will get to his head and he'll go back to the bottle um, and he'll drink away his his uh, his success as King of the Ring. It's his short term, um, this is a short-lived, uh, you know, celebration and Lawler really kind of poking at Jake's personal life and really getting really getting under his skin. Um, I could see that King of the Ring kind of being the catalyst for all that. Even though you didn't really need it in 96 because it was well documented, uh, you know, Jake's personal problems behind the scenes uh, before his return to the WWF. They used that as the catalyst for his his rivalry with Jerry the King Lawler. However, um, do I see this turning into something major for Jake? Yes and no. I don't see him winning the title. I don't see him being a part of like the top storylines. However, I could see him kind of being a stopgap for someone like a Vader. Okay, um, you know, Vader was going into SummerSlam later that year, you know, challenging Shawn Michaels for the WWF Championship. But um, I feel like you know because Vader was the one that injured Jake in the semifinals of that King of the Ring tournament before he had to wrestle Austin, they could kind of touch on that history as well. That you know Jake is a is a tainted King of the Ring winner because Vader was the real victor in that match. Vader loosened him up and Vader beat him up pretty good. So I I feel like you could kind of touch on that with Jake and maybe just maybe you know. Jake getting past Lawler and all of Lawler's shenanigans and poking fun at him with his, you know, his his history of substance abuse and really bringing that to light on television to then Jake maybe, you know, saying, you know, I'm going to take this King of the Ring victory and I'm going to take advantage of it. I'm not going to do what I used to do, you know, back then. I'm not going to, you know, squander my my success, you know, by by drinking it away or abusing drugs. I'm going to take advantage of this opportunity to the fullest because this might be the last chance I got and I'm going to do the one thing I've never been able to do in the WWF and that's be the WWF champion. That could be something in 1996 that I feel like has some legs to it. Um because 
it, I don't know. I, that that story of like the grizzled old vet going for one last opportunity. It always sells. It works. Rocky, you know, Sylvester Stallone made a living off of it with a few of his Rocky movies. You know, um, it's it's one of those scenarios that people can, you know, are easily drawn to. It's very sympathetic. It's something that you know, um, older athletes in other professional sports could be attracted to as well. They could relate to that as well, being guys that wanted one more chance at glory, one more chance at an opportunity to to to, to be at the mountaintop. And this is something that Jake has never done. The, the, the highest achievement he had ever attained was becoming the king of the ring at that stage in his career. It's so late in his career. So um, I'm not saying Jake would have been challenging Shawn Michaels, but... Um, Maybe a sympathetic march towards a championship title shot with Jake the Snake Roberts as the king of the ring could be something we would see on episodes of Monday Night Raw. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, um, you know, if the, if according to plan, and this is the rumor, the plan was was that Vader was supposed to be the guy to face Shawn Michaels at Survivor Series in 1996 and defeat him for the title. They were going to trade the belt back with Sean and Vader at the Rumble in 97 in San Antonio. What if Jake was that stopgap for Vader in December at the In Your House It's Time pay-per-view? Jake has that King of the Ring victory behind him. Jake's been battling his demons. Jake has been overcoming all obstacles. The, the, the grizzled old vet going for one last opportunity at the mountaintop and the WWF Championship. And just big bad Vader as the champion just steamrolls over him, humiliates him, and really draws more heat to his, his run as he heads towards the rematch with Shawn Michaels. Um... But at the same time, you also have to factor in Bret Hart because Bret Hart had returned as well. Um, so maybe maybe a pay-per-view main event for Jake with Vader uh, wouldn't, wouldn't be very plausible for the championship. Like I said, maybe a Monday Night Raw um, championship match against Vader um, on a live edition of Raw would have been the, the ceiling that the, the 1996 King of the Ring, Jake the Snake Roberts, could have attained. So... Um, realistically, I don't even see it going past the chain. I don't even see it going past his issues with Lawler. I feel like, um, that's where he, that's where he kind of maps out, you know, Jake winning the King of the Ring and, you know, Lawler kind of poking fun at that victory and using Jake's issues with substance abuse as a way to poke and prod at him and downplay his victory in the King of the Ring tournament. But however, you know, History, like I said, history history can be kind and, and not so kind to, to to some people. And in this scenario, it's a little I'll I'll go on a limb here and say that like as plausible as I think it could be in twenty nineteen to see a scenario like that in nineteen ninety six, you gotta go back and look at nineteen ninety six and the WWF was in their rebuild like in one of their rebuilding years and they weren't rebuilding the WWF with Jake the Snake Roberts. He was an integral part of helping them get the younger guys and moving them up the ladder, but he certainly wasn't a, a major focal point. So realistically, Steve Austin was the right choice because where can we say a Jake the Snake Roberts victory in the King of the Ring tournament uh, would, what would that do for Steve Austin? You know, because Steve Austin was one that was just kind of, I wouldn't say floundering, but he hadn't really found like a solid role. Um, you know, he had gotten rid of DiBiase. He had that series of matches with Savio Vega, but that was really about it. 
he needed that King of the Ring to really uh, get him to the next level. And so that's that's where I stand with 1996. Uh, let's move on to 1997 because I talked about it just you know briefly in our last scenario. Triple H, Hunter Hearst Helmsley, was originally supposed to be the guy to face, um, to, to, to win the King of the Ring, excuse me. And, you know, his, uh, his, his involvement in the curtain call changed that. So they waited a year. He, he, he was dealt his punishment. And this was a way of them saying, at least from what I've heard and from what I've read, was, you know, we're, we're, you know your, your punishment's over. We're ready to give you another opportunity. Don't screw it up. And Triple H would take that ball and run with it. Um, as he defeated Mankind in the 1997 King of the Ring Tournament Finals. Um, you know, let's let's go back here a little bit, okay? Um, Triple H, the Greenwich Blue Blood, the, um, the, the, the aristocrat, uh, the, the snob, if you will, um, really developing that character um, into his own in 96 and then even in 97. Um, and the polar opposite, the the toughest nails, um, cosmetically unfavorable, um, lovable mankind as his foe. Mankind's character was developing a um, a following after a series of interviews with Jim Ross, um, talking about you know Mick Foley's childhood and growing up being a wrestling fan and. And so it was. He was starting to gain a following, and heading into this match, he had had a solid following behind him of fans that were really starting to endear themselves to him um, in this tournament. And so, um, what would follow? History showed us. You know, this rivalry would continue for the next two pay per views. Canadian Stampede. They had a great match that ended in a no contest with a brawl um, that was all over the 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 the, uh, the, the Saddle Dome in Calgary. And then they would blow it off at uh, SummerSlam in 1997, which we discussed on our summer, the very first Trading Places edition of Kicking Out at Two. You can find that over in the archives. Um, yeah, so let's just say history treats mankind better, and he wins the King of the Ring tournament. Um, mankind would kind of fall in the in the, the the category of how Hacksaw Jim Duggan would have treated that that role as the king, um, where it's like a title of his own, um, his biggest accomplishment to date, but he sees more than just that. And even though others don't see much from him, um, he sees more than just being the king of the ring winner. Um, I could, I, I realistically in 1997 with mankind as the king, I could see, you know, the kind of the same path he was on with, with, with Hunter Hearst Helmsley, but with, you know, like I said, with him as the king and Hunter being embarrassed that a guy like him is the king and is representing the World Wrestling Federation. And um, that's something that could, you know, branch off with other heels uh, in the WWF at the time, maybe even members of the Hart Foundation. Because, um, you know, Mick Foley and the Mankind character as a babyface, you know, had loosely um, involved himself in the Hart Foundation storyline from time to time. Um, you know, maybe seeing, you know, an Owen Hart or British Bulldog just kind of show disdain for, um, you know, mankind as the king of the ring. Uh, it's something that, you know, has has legs to it, something creatively that I think 
you know, the, the, the possibilities are endless, especially with the performers. And uh, something that I think would be fun. Um, but I think mankind would still be on the same path he, he was on, um, you know, had he not won the King of the Ring. And I, and I mentioned this in, you know, um, you know, on that Trading Places episode of SummerSlam 1997. Mankind's greatest victories were his greatest defeats in his career. He, his character built off of his losses and the audience got behind him and he was more popular after suffering devastating losses to guys that he was in heated rivalries and heated battles with. So um, realistically in 1997, this was probably the better path. And this was also something that, you know, was, was very much needed for Triple H and the Hunter Hearst Helmsley character because he was coming off a year of being in the doghouse and he was still young and he still, you know, he still had potential. So they needed to pull the trigger um, fairly soon if people were going to get behind him um, as a serious uh, character on television. So, um, yeah, not too much for mankind as the king of the ring in 1997, but I think he would have, I think he would have had some fun with it with Hunter and maybe even guys from the Hart Foundation, may hell, maybe even the nation. You know, maybe even guys in the nation like The Rock, uh, he would have he had some fun with that too as well. Um, you never know, but uh, the possibilities are endless, but not anything earth-shattering. You, you wouldn't see, you know, Mankind's King of the Ring victory leading him to um, the WWF Championship anytime soon. Uh, let's move on to 1998 and a King of the Ring winner that I felt was... He needed it, but they didn't do anything with it, and they didn't really, um, they didn't really uh, run with it as, as well as I thought they did. Um, and I'm talking about Ken Shamrock. Uh, Ken Shamrock being the world's most dangerous man, coming from UFC, he had a big entry into the company a year prior. He was looked at as a badass, a credible threat and contender for the title. I remember as a kid, I was, you know used to wonder, you know, he's from UFC, he's from the shoot fighting world. Why isn't he fighting for the WWF title? Um, this and this is before MMA was a big phenomenon that it is today, and I was just baffled by that. That why wouldn't Ken Shamrock wrestle Stone Cold Steve Austin? Why wouldn't Ken Shamrock wrestle you know um, Undertaker? You know, I didn't really look at the size issue like a lot of people do, um, because he was just promoted as this like this the world's most dangerous man, this badass. So Shamrock winning the King of the Ring, I thought was a nice touch. Um, because he had been screwed out of the Intercontinental Championship on a few occasions during uh, his rivalry with The Rock, uh, both at the Royal Rumble in 1998 and then WrestleMania later that year. So um, this was a nice little feather in his cap, um, but they didn't really run with it. They really didn't run with it, and it was kind of disappointing. Um you know, because I saw bigger things for Ken Shamrock as a fan. I had imagined and hoped for bigger things for Ken, the Ken Shamrock character as a fan. However, um, you know, had the roles been reversed and we saw The Rock win the King of the Ring tournament that year in 1998, I feel like I feel like it would have been something cool to witness. Um, the Rock was clearly on his path to stardom. Okay, and in some regards. You could say he didn't need a King of the Ring victory, but it would have been a nice feather in his cap. There I go saying it again. I'm probably I've said it quite a bit on this show, and I'll probably say it again throughout the rest of this recording. But uh, yeah, um, certainly uh, something that would have been you know 
nice to add to the resume, so to speak. He had already been the Intercontinental Champion. Uh, at that point, he was the leader of the nation. He had kind of overtaken Farouk as the leader of the nation, and he was involved in a rivalry with DX and mainly Triple H. And those were the two, you know, leaders of each faction, and they had put on some classic matches with each other. However, um, Rock, like I said, he didn't need it, but it would have been nice. And I, I realistically, um, it, I don't think it would have done much. But from a, um, with my imagination and my creativity going through my head right now as I'm trying to, you know, get, get this thought process out to you with my words, imagine The Rock winning the King of the Ring and him really, really, really embellishing this role as like the Roy, you know, he used to claim he was the ruler of the nation, like now he could be the ruler of the world, you know, as the King of the Ring. Um, you know, imagine The Rock, you know, Kind of, kind of going that Razor Ramon route a little bit, with, and adding his own spin to the 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 perception cosmetically as the King of the Ring. I'm not saying The Rock would have came out with the robe and the crown, but maybe adding little nuances of that royalty to his presentation, um, and really, really running with him being the king. The the instead of being the the Rock, he would have been um, King Rock or. Um, the Royal Maya Via or something like that. I'm not saying it was something that would have lasted long, but imagine him boasting and bragging about being the king of the ring for months on end. And he goes through his war with Triple H. They still go to you know fully loaded and have the two out of three falls match for the Intercontinental title. He still goes to SummerSlam and they had that classic ladder match for the Intercontinental title uh, with, with Triple H coming out the victor. Um, um, imagine, you know, even The Rock as the King of the Ring in 1998, uh, really, like I said, boasting and bragging about it, and then this is where the nation turns on The Rock, um, because it was kind of, the, the way that they turned on The Rock in, in, in later, you know, late 1998, before he became the champion, it was done, like, very quickly just to get it out of the way, because Rock's popularity was so big. Um, but just imagine if the, the the popularity and his his ego as King of the Ring were the straw that finally broke the camel's back for you know D'Lo, Godfather, and Mark Henry and Owen Hart, and they they just they put the boots to him, and maybe you know Rock kind of has a little run against those guys as the King of the Ring, really establishing himself as the babyface, and then maybe we get to where we got to with Survivor Series and Rock eventually being the corporate champion and the corporation backing him and becoming the World Wrestling Federation champion. You know, The Rock could, you know, The Rock kind of gave the same speech. Like, you people told me, you know, Rocky sucks and die, Rocky die, and then all of a sudden you care about me and, 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 and you know, you, you expect me to, to believe all that? You know, that's why I joined the corporation because I'm the corporate champion. I don't represent the people, you know. The Rock could kind of add that twist, but with him as the king of the ring that year. Um, that's, that's you know, I feel like that's a realistic ceiling for him to reach in 1998 at that time. Um, just imagine the possibilities, you know. Know your role, shut your mouth, the, the, the king has spoken, the king says, the king says, the king says, you know what I mean? Um, I know that they probably didn't want to step on Jerry Lawler's toes because he was the established king and he was a color commentator for the programming, but 
the possibilities, man, with The Rock as the king of the ring in 1998, man, whew, like I said, put him through the ringer with Hunter, and then finally the nation getting jealous of all the success that he's had, you know, and, and his ego getting the best of him, and they, they kind of dump on him and turn on him, um, which would result in the people uh, getting behind him even more, only for him to say, fuck you, I don't need you, the corporation's got my back, and I'm going to be the champion, and then you have it right there, you know, just uh, some a nice little twist to, to, to Rock's trajectory heading into the end of 1998 um, with him as the champion, so uh, that that's probably the the most fun scenario out of all of these here um, with Rock as the king of the ring. I could just only imagine how that would have played out in 1998 um let's move on to the following year an underwhelming king of the ring victory uh came um that year with billy gunn mr ass badass billy gunn defeating x-pac in the finals his former dx buddy billy had turned on road dog and uh the new age outlaws were done dx was kind of done because triple h had joined the corporation uh you know little uh a few months prior, I should say. So DX kind of imploded. Um, guys were going their separate ways. X-Pac was developing a friendship, uh, tag team partnership with Kane. Road Dog was kind of part of that. He was a little bit of a third wheel, but he was doing his own thing at the same time. And Billy was, you know, Billy was destined, at least in my opinion at that time in 1999, destined to be a big single star in the main event scene. Um, and unfortunately... It just didn't happen for him for whatever reason. I don't know if it was injuries or if just people didn't buy into it. But, uh, you know, Billy Gunn would become king of the ring. But um, after his humiliating loss to The Rock in the Kiss My Ass match in at SummerSlam of 1999 that year, they, they kind of went back to the well with Billy as a good guy. And eventually they would have him reform uh, the New Age Outlaws. So um, it was... It was one of those scenarios where um, I was really hoping that it would make a, 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 a new main event star in Mr. Ass, King Billy or King Ass or King Mr. Ass, the royal Mr. Ass, but um, it didn't happen. Uh, there's been rumors that he was, he was, he was uh, set to have a rivalry with Steve Austin, but um, Austin turned that down and rejected that. Uh, some say that um, Austin didn't feel like he... Uh, he brought it enough in the ring to to warrant a main event rivalry, but um, nonetheless, uh, let's trade places here. Nineteen ninety nine. Let's go, King X Pac. Okay, if X Pac were to have defeated Billy Gunn, um, very similar to the Savio Vega uh, scenario, where you know a fluke victory for X Pac, who was injured. In that King of the Ring tournament, going into that match, and that was really the story that was told in the finals with him and Billy. Billy just kind of working on that neck. If uh, an X-Pac King of the Ring victory um, were to have occurred, I could see more more of the same from you know the situation with Savio. Maybe X-Pac is involved in the Intercontinental title picture with someone like a Jeff Jarrett and a D'Lo Brown, but... Um, you know, I could see them also looking at it as like a fluke victory, you know, um, X-Punk, um, you know, maybe maybe revisiting some of the stuff with Shane McMahon because they had that, that that surprisingly really good match at WrestleMania earlier that year. Um, maybe as King of the Ring, that would uh, 
you know, prompt uh, Shane McMahon and what was left of the corporate ministry to uh, to to kind of you know put the boots to X Pac and dispute his victory as King of the Ring. But it, I don't think it would have really garnered much. Maybe just maybe, okay. Um, with Triple H's path to the championship and him as the WWF champion following SummerSlam, um, maybe we would have seen an X-Pac, Triple H, WWF title match as a main event of a Monday Night Raw or even SmackDown because SmackDown had just uh, debuted um, on w, you know, as, a, as a new show for WWF programming. So maybe we would have seen that, but I don't think it would have really mount, amounted to much with X-Pac as the king of the ring, um, he would have just been like the underdog, the sympathetic, um, you know, uh, uh, king and victor of that tournament. And I feel like in 1999, they certainly would have downplayed it. Maybe it would have led to, um, you know, Kane turning on him and being jealous of his success. You know, it was X-Pac who was, you know, in, in storyline was helping Kane get out of his shell uh, helping him talk more result, you know, coming, coming after the, uh, the fact that, you know, Kane was a, a sheltered individual and he could barely talk and, you know, he, he felt he had an ugly face and that's why he wore a mask. Maybe we would have seen Kane become jealous of that success, uh, from X-Pac and, uh, you know, Kane turning on X-Pac, but uh, I mean, I don't think X-Pac as King of the Ring would have been setting the world on fire. He was popular. Don't get me wrong. He was very popular in 1999 in 98, 99, but I, I, I don't see huge things for Sean Waltman as the king of the ring in 1999. Uh, let's move on to the year 2000. Another trading places scenario that um, it doesn't have too it doesn't have much legs. Um, let's you know, Kurt Angle would win the king of the ring that year, defeating Rikishi. Kurt Angle was it was another feather in his cap. He was going on this. Incredible run as his, you know, in his first year in wrestling, as uh, you know, he would win the European title, the Intercontinental title. He'd become King of the Ring. He was involved in a major storyline with Triple H and Stephanie McMahon. He would eventually win the WWF Championship from The Rock at No Mercy later that year. So they were just piling on the accolades for this newcomer and Kurt Angle, and people were, you know, accepting of it. And he he didn't look like he was, you know, a newcomer to many people because he was so good in the ring and he was very good on the mic for someone with very little experience. He took to the, the, the business really well. And so realistically, um, King of the Ring for him really helped him out um, amongst the other accolades that his character had uh, had had achieved at that time. But, um, you know, had the results gone in another direction and Rikishi were to have won King of the Ring that year... Um, I don't really see Rikishi um, going any further than where he was at that time. Um, I could, I, you know, he was associated with Too Cool. He was kind of like their running buddy. Uh, they would, you know, work in a lot of six-man tags with, you know, guys like the Right to Censor, um, the Radicals, those guys. And so uh, I don't see um Maybe, you know, Rikishi ended up working with Val Venus at one point, I think, for the Intercontinental title. Um, and then later on in the year, as we all know, um, you know, it would be revealed that he was the driver that ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin at Survivor Series in 1999. And with the famous, I did it for the rock. I did it for the people. I did it. I did it. Um, 
Yeah, I don't I don't really see Rikishi's trajectory going any further than, you know, an intercontinental uh, championship run. Um, you know, originally Rikishi as the driver of the vehicle, everyone thought that that was the end-all be-all, that Rikishi was the guy that came up with the plan and Rikishi, you know, executed it. And, you know, he gained a lot from being... Um, the one to run over Stone Cold Steve Austin because he would debut in WWF not too long after that. He would become wildly popular uh, to the point where, you know, some thought that he could have main evented WrestleMania um, in 2000 with uh, with uh, Rock, Triple H, and Big Show in that four-way. Even though they put Foley in it, there were a lot of rumors at the time, at least from what I read, and I don't know how true it is, that Rikishi was, was discussed as being a part of that main event for WrestleMania that year because he was so popular. And... Um, you know, you could have you could have used the King of the Ring as a feather in his cap for you know a part of this you know I ran over Austin storyline as you know he obtained the success of of uh, winning the King of the Ring tournament you know in largely in part to the fact that you know Austin was gone and he was the reason why Austin was gone because he ran over him so I mean you could kind of tie that in there but they had to call an audible. And, you know, Rikishi was just the driver, but he wasn't the one that came up with the plan. It would turn out it would be Triple H all along, uh, as, as we saw. So, um, in 2000, um, a King of the Ring victory for Rikishi, like I said, it could be a decent little feather in his cap, but it's not really taking him places in, in, in 2000, heading into 2001. It really wasn't. Um, it really isn't, I should say, in hindsight, looking back on it right now, if they were to have gone that direction. Um you know he could have you know he could have easily adopted that king character and it would have been popular um you know he, he kind of in the same vein as a hacksaw jim duggan and i keep bringing him up a lot but duggan really adapted to that king role and used it as like a championship of his own you know what i mean like even though he didn't really officially win the king of the ring people accepted him as king duggan you know because he was he was popular he was likable and uh you know people felt that you know he deserved more than what he got and in this case for rikishi it goes along the same vein that he was popular um you know people were really into him his matches were good um he was he was a credible um presence in wwf storylines at that time and so king rikishi could have easily been something that he could have ran with and really used um in the same vein as a hacksaw Jim Duggan. Like, that would have been Rikishi's title. That's his championship. That's his ceiling. But, you know, he had a run with the Intercontinental title. They put him in the situation where he was the guy that ran over Stone Cold Steve Austin. In some ways, you could have said that that success would have never happened had Austin been, you know, been able to wrestle and he wasn't run over. But at the same time, like, you know, you never really know because the plan wasn't, in my opinion, scheduled to be Rikishi all along so um there's a like I said there's a few different ways you could have gone with it but it's not anything earth shattering that's going to um you know really catapult the status of Rikishi uh had he won the king of the ring so uh yeah that's where I stand when it comes to him let's move on to our uh our second to last king of the ring trading places scenario 2001 saw edge uh, really break out as a single star. Him and Christian had uh, pretty much done it all as a tag team at that time in the World Wrestling Federation, and they were kind of flirting with the idea of not only splitting the two of them up, but um, both guys becoming singles. And uh, they were both involved in the King of the Ring tournament. 
Uh, Christian would end up, Christian Edge would also be in the final four with uh, Kurt Angle and Rhino at that pay per view. And it would come down to uh, Kurt Angle and Edge in the finals. Uh, Kurt Angle was, you know, the, the MVP of the night um, with his, you know, unbelievable, dangerously spectacular performance against uh, uh, Shane McMahon in that, that street fight. But he would also wrestle Christian and Edge in King of the Ring matches, leading to the final with Edge, where he would uh, come up short and lose. Um, and we would see Edge as the King of the Ring. And this was the first year that... Um, this was the first year that uh, they, they they switched up the prize and they gave the King of the Ring winner a trophy, very similar to the NHL's uh, Stanley Cup, um, which I thought was kind of neat. It was, it was interesting. Um, they used it as, like, you know, a prop and as a part of the presentation moving forward where, you know, Christian was so proud of Edge. He was the one that was carrying Edge's King of the Ring trophy and not Edge, even though Edge had won it. Um, but had they gone in the opposite direction, Kurt Angle... As King of the Ring in 2001 would have done nothing for him because Kurt Angle was so popular and so over at that point, he didn't need it. Kurt Angle had, at that time, virtually almost done it all in the World Wrestling Federation, and a King of the Ring victory would have done zero for him. And I really don't see, I really don't see what that could have done for him um, moving forward. As you know, we saw, you know, history showed us that. The WCW invasion was on its way. Eventually, it would, you know, involve ECW. We would get the alliance, and they would battle the World Wrestling Federation. And, um, you know, everything was kind of thrown out the window at that point. So, even if Kurt Angle won the King of the Ring tournament in 2001, I feel like it would have been forgotten about because they were really putting their their eggs in in, in one big basket with this with this invasion storyline. And it would have just, it would have been, it would have fallen to the wayside. So at the very least, Edge needed it because Edge's character was moving up the ranks. He was popular. Um, and it was something that was going to be a nice way to push him to the next level. So I'm not going to get too deep into that because, you know, Kurt Angle had been there, done that. He did King of the Ring the year prior, and him doing it again in 2001 uh, would have been forgotten and would have done jack shit for him so let's move on to the final trading places scenario here uh when it comes to the king of the ring finalists uh, in 2002 um things were changing in wwe um they had become wwe they went from becoming the you know the world wrestling federation to losing their battle with the world wildlife fund um in a courtroom and having to change the name of their company to wwe world wrestling entertainment and we saw a lot of things changing from the beginning of the year we saw um uh, the the nwo uh have a presence in wwf storylines the return of hulk hogan kevin nash and scott hall rick flair was a part of wwf programming um after wrestlemania we would see the very first brand split and we would see a lot of new faces pop up and one of those new faces was brock lesnar he was a big time name in their developmental territory down in ohio valley wrestling Brock had, uh, you know, impressed a lot of people down there. Brock being a former amateur wrestler and a um, NCAA uh, Greco-Roman freestyle uh, national champion for the University of Minnesota. He was a big prospect. The WWF had signed him. They had groomed him. And they had brought him to television with Paul Heyman as his manager, his agent at the time, I should say. 
And Brock was Brock came in hot, man. He was going through everybody, and they were building towards the future because this was, you know, like I said, they had the brand split, and they were really going in a different direction for the company with this brand split, and they needed they needed to have some fresh faces. You know, if you had guys that were exclusive to both Raw and SmackDown, you couldn't have them intermingle, but you needed to also, you know, add a good mixture of established guys and veterans as well as newcomers. And Brock was one of those big newcomers that they really were, um, they really had big plans for. They really saw big things in him at that time in 2002. We all know where he is now and what he's been doing, um, you know, with WWE, um, Mr. Part-Time, uh, and his, his status with the company and the, the stuff he's done since he's returned in 2012 with his numerous uh, stints with, with uh, the WWE. But in 2002... Um, he was a virtual rookie, but a rookie with promise. And it was only a matter of time before Brock was going to be, um, you know, they claimed him to be the next big thing, but he was he was going to be a big thing. And he, and he was going to be the big thing. Um, he was going through guys left and right. And so King of the Ring was a foregone conclusion, uh, considering who was in the tournament. Brock had an unbelievably impressive match with Test, uh, in the semifinals early in that evening. And then across the other side, um, RVD managed to squeak out the victory over Chris Jericho in another great um, semifinal match between those two guys. Uh, so, um, you know, we reached the finals, and Brock Lesnar would defeat Rob Van Dam in decisive fashion. RVD was a very popular character, another guy who came over after ECW had closed down, and he had a lot you know, a lot of momentum behind him. He he took well to the WWF audience. He was probably one of the top five most popular guys in that company at the time for someone who was relatively new and wasn't a WWE-produced um, character. And so um, RVD was in some top-level matches, not necessarily uh, the WWF champion or in the main event, but he was... He, he was a name. He was a staple. He was one of the flagships at the time. So Brock defeating him and Brock being a relatively newcomer certainly helped him. Um, realistically, like, I, like I've said, and most of these trading places scenarios, realistically, um, the, the, the victor that history had given us is probably the better victor. However, um, if Rob Van Dam were to have squeaked out the victory uh, over Brock Lesnar, um, this this uh, King of the Ring tournament win would determine the number one contender for the WWE Championship going into SummerSlam later that year. They were trying to add big stakes to the King of the Ring tournament, and they were trying to, um, you know, really beef up SummerSlam. And so Brock would win. We all know where that got him. He defeated The Rock at SummerSlam earlier that year. But if RVD would have won, and we trade places here, and RVD would have defeated, uh, you know, the, the next big thing, Brock Lesnar, where do we go from there? Um, I mean, Brock's such a big imposing figure and a character. I felt like he could have gotten his heat back easily by you know destroying RVD the next night on Raw or destroying some other random guy and you know Brock kind of being this uncontrollable monster that Paul Heyman's just letting loose on WWE um, would have still, I think, kept Brock relevant. Um at the time in 2002, I think it would have done some good things for RVD to win the King of the Ring um, because, you know, he had flirted with the main event a little bit um, in 2001. Uh, some people thought he was going to be the WWF champion 
you know, in that Alliance storyline with his beef with uh, current Alliance member and leader, Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was the WWF champion at the time. But that didn't happen. That didn't come to fruition. RVD was still popular even following that. So um, with the landscape that WWE was at that time, um, a King of the Ring victory for RVD would have been it would it would have been a nice a nice you know it would have, it would have been nice on his resume but um what would it have done for what would it have done for him long term um i think for the short term considering the brand extension and they were trying to have champions exclusive to certain shows we would eventually see brock be exclusive to smackdown with the wwe title um it would have it would have given him an opportunity maybe at the world championship that they had reintroduced the big gold belt the old WCW World Heavyweight Title but it's another situation that I don't think they would have gone really very far with it as RVD is the king um, he would have made it into his own it probably would have been very popular but um, I don't think as King of the Ring he would have been setting the world on fire and been that figurehead and that face um, of the company at the time but I think he would have been a good Babyface trailing the champion, and that's what I kind of thought we were going to see with him and Triple H in the fall of that year, when they reintroduced the big gold belt and they just kind of handed it to Triple H. But um, you know, things saw you know things were different as Shawn Michaels played a role in that, and Shawn Michaels was you know returning, and uh, you know he had a big part in the championship scene with Triple H. So RVD was just kind of left to the wayside. Um, I don't think it would have. I, I don't think long term RVD as King of the Ring would have really done much. Um, it would have been somewhat of a short term thing, and it probably would have been forgotten about before the year ended, and then we would have moved on. So um, yeah, RVD as King of the Ring, cool for the short term. Big picture though, doesn't really do much for him or for the overall landscape. Um, you could rationalize certain situations with him as King of the Ring, but at the same time. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't really matter. So um, that's where I stand with Rob Van Dam as a potential King of the Ring winner from the year 2000. As we close things up here with our King of the Ring Trading Places series, thank you all so very much for joining me this week. Once again, I apologize. Flying solo, schedule issues. Had to cram this one in so that you guys could all get new content each and every week. And if you didn't like my performance, then by all means... I'm not a hater. I can appreciate I can appreciate the constructive criticism. Hit us up on social media and tell me why you want to hear me bounce off ideas and talk about pro wrestling with a co-host and not to myself and all of you. Do it. Facebook.com forward slash kicking out at two, as well as our Twitter handle at kicking out two. K-I-C-K-N-O-U-T and the number two. I'll guarantee you this much. Next week, there's definitely gonna be a co-host. Okay, I'm not sure who yet, but next week someone's going to be joining me for the ECW One Night Stand 2005 watch party. Have your WWE Network fired up and ready to go. Turn the TV on, but hit that mute button on your remote control. Then turn this podcast on, follow our instructions, and listen to wrestling fans talk about this historic event 14 years to the day. Everyone loves to hear the experts. Everyone loves to talk about the people that were there, that lived it. And of course... Why wouldn't they? However, listen to a wrestling fan's perspective on it, okay? Not some smart mark wrestling fan, but a tried and true 
pro wrestling fan, someone that could appreciate all forms of wrestling, like myself and the rest of us here at Kicking Out of Two. So be on the lookout for that. Next week, ECW One Night Stand 2005 Watch Party here on Kicking Out at Two. And be on the lookout later this weekend for uh, our sister show, Marking Out the Days Weekend Warriors, as we're going to be covering June the 6th in professional wrestling history from WCW Saturday Night and WWF Superstars. We cover both of those episodes and we uh, we, we compare and contrast. We, we we talk about the comings and goings of the storylines that took place in those respective organizations and we determine who had the best show on that particular day. Kobe Nida, the brainchild of the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network. Him and I, we hop on that magic school bus of wrestling podcast and we travel to 1992, June the 6th for WCW Saturday Night and WWF Superstars. You can find that show over on the Retromania Pro Wrestling Podcast Network this weekend. And with that being said, is it good to be the king or would you rather be a runner-up? And maybe that runner-up, bigger things come from losing the king of the ring. Well, those answers, they're still undecided and undetermined. But what is determined is that this show is going down for the three count. All hail the king, and we will see you all next week.